18. And we're looking this morning at the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. But I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Well, it's obvious reading the letters of the Apostle Paul that the gospel was of first importance to him. The gospel being the good news about Christ, about Jesus as a person, about his work particularly, his death and his resurrection. That gospel for Paul was of first importance. Nothing came ahead of the gospel apart from God himself. And so the things that comprise the gospel, the base, the uh, core elements of the gospel, the teachings of the gospel, such as the resurrection and death of Christ, they obviously fit into that first importance category for the apostle. And you can see that from these verses, how jealously Paul set out to guard that teaching to continue to promote that teaching and to actually make sure that those he was writing to understood how important the gospel and the core elements of the gospel were at all times. It wasn't just for Paul's time, as we'll see today, what Paul is saying, saying here to the Corinthians is an abiding truth for ourselves as well, because that gospel and the core elements of that gospel are still of such importance to us today as they were for the apostle in his day. And a denial of the resurrection of Christ, that means an actual resurrection, a bodily resurrection, a physical resurrection from the grave, is itself an attack on the gospel and the integrity of the gospel. You take that out of it, like one of those Jenga blocks, you take away one of the bottom uh, rungs and eventually the whole thing collapses. This is one of the primary planks or the primary points or truths of the gospel, that Christ is actually risen from the dead. It follows from his death. It's of the same importance as the death that Jesus died on the cross. And to deny the resurrection as an actual resurrection, as a physical resurrection, really destroys the gospel in its meaning and it removes one of the core elements from the gospel. That's why the, the resurrection is of such importance to Christians today to actually defend that doctrine, even if it means in places in the world with their very lives. So look in, at these uh, first five verses. Let's look firstly at the gospel of salvation as he describes it there the gospel I preach to you, the gospel by which you're being saved, the gospel of salvation. And then we'll look at the core of the gospel in terms of what he says here in the first five verses, the uh, way in which it's, uh, the core of it is Christ's death and his burial and then his resurrection 
from the dead. But notice in verses 1 and 2 how he describes this gospel in relation to what he himself was as a preacher of the gospel and what these Corinthians were as receivers of the gospel. That too is for the apostle such an important issue. Here he is, he's saying, now I would remind you, brothers, it's not something they didn't know about, he's not teaching them anything new, but that's one of the beauties of the Bible, one of the beauties of the New Testament itself as well, is that it takes you back by way of reminders, by way of just recalling to memory what things we already know, but are of primary importance to us. And the Gospel writers, the apostles, are not ashamed to do that repeatedly because they know and we should know how important it is to have the core elements held to as foundationally important to ourselves. So he's saying here, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive. That's the first thing he's saying. It's the gospel I preach to you. Now for the apostle, the preaching of the gospel is also of such importance that he wants to emphasize it at this point. And that's something that we have to maintain as uh, an emphasis, uh, as a thing of importance in our own understanding of what it is to uh, be under the gospel and to preach the gospel and to know what the gospel is about. He's saying here it's the gospel that I preach to you. And the word preach there is a word that means in Greek to herald something, to make an announcement of it. Like what you would find, for example, when royalty is about to enter a building such as Westminster Abbey, one of those special occasions when the Queen is about to enter. There's a fanfare, there's an announcement, there's something that happens that really says royalty is entering the Queen. Her Majesty is on the way. She's just going to make her way into the building. Well, he's saying, this is what I'm doing with the Gospel. I'm heralding the Gospel. I'm pronouncing the Gospel, he's saying. This is the Gospel that I heralded to you. Why is the preaching of the Gospel important? Why is it important to be under the preaching of the gospel? Because that's being minimized in certain places today and the preaching of the gospel is being reduced in certain places and certain denominations. It's being reduced to a bare minimum and it's uh, at the, in, in uh, these situations very often it's uh, singings and other things that are then being increased. Now there's nothing wrong, of course, with singing praises to God and with other elements of our worship such as we are engaged in today but when you take away the preaching of the gospel or reduce it to a bare minimum then you're doing something that's contrary to what the word itself tells us because for Paul the preaching of the gospel was of such importance people came to faith through the preaching of the gospel Romans 10 talks about the gospel being preached and people being called to preach the gospel and people coming to hear the word of God preached. And what he says there is faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. In other words, the word that we have, this written word, is a word that's designed by God to be preached. To be preached out, to be expounded, to be heralded so that we try and bring out the meaning of it. And that takes a bit of time and it takes a bit of effort. We trust that we who preach the gospel are doing that faithfully. That's what Paul is keen to protect. We were to reduce the gospel. We were to announce as a Kirk session next week we're only going to have a five-minute sermon. Well, for a start, I would find it difficult to, to confine myself to a five-minute sermon. But that, of course, would be reducing such an important element of worship, an important element of presenting the truth of God. It's fine to have the Bible, great to have the Bible, great to read the Bible. 
We could come and just imagine yourselves here today after prayer and a few singings, then spending 20 minutes just reading the Word for yourself. Nothing wrong with that in itself, but then that's not how the Gospel announcement is made. The preaching of the Gospel is of such critical importance. You know, there will be people um, today who will actually tap into this service online at some point. We're glad that that facility is there. There are people that and get in touch with me constantly and saying how good it is that they're able to actually see a video of the service, a video of the gospel being preached because they may be in places where they don't have access to it or aren't able physically to get access to it. And we welcome them today as they actually listen in online or watch online um, because it gives them um, more than just listening to it in an audio. That's also very good, but uh, what they tell me is it makes them feel more part of the occasion by the fact they're able to see the preaching of the gospel. They're able to see the gospel being declared and they're feeling part of that as they listen to it. So that's such a great thing. The preaching of the gospel for Paul is so important. Secondly, he says, which you received. Which you received. The gospel was preached by him but he's saying to the Corinthians, as I preached it to you, you received it. The truth that I heralded to you, you then correspondingly or respondingly received that. And the gospel is there to be received. This is not just a bare word. It's a truth of God. It's something in which salvation is actually placed by God as that salvation is announced, as that salvation in Christ is heralded, as it is preached. It is being received by people who themselves are desirous of being saved. We'll see that in a minute. The gospel by which you are being saved. It all comes together. You have to keep these elements together. But um, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, you have uh, in the first uh, chapter of 1 Thessalonians, a similar kind of reference to the gospel and how the Thessalonians received it. In chapter 1, verse 4, um, of 1 Thessalonians for we know brothers beloved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction and then uh, he talks about them becoming examples to others that were around them but in verse 6 there um, he says you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples. And the, the language that Paul is using there is the language of welcome. It's like just meeting a long absent friend or companion or somebody that you've been longing uh, to meet or somebody to, that's been away for, for a while and you're, you're really looking forward to welcoming them back. That's the kind of language that Paul is using there for the Thessalonian reception of the gospel. You welcomed it. You threw your arms around it. You took it into your heart. You loved it. You gave it a loving welcome. How is it with yourself today? How is it with yourself as the word is being preached even now? Isn't it a word and it's, isn't the gospel message itself, isn't the Jesus of the gospel, as he's presented to you in the preaching of the word, isn't he there to be welcomed? And are you today welcoming this gospel? Is it the best news for you that you've ever heard? 
It's there to be welcomed. It's there uh, to be received like the Thessalonians just to give it a rousing reception. It's just like uh, in those days in the Greek games when um, somebody carrying the torch for the Olympic flame came into the stadium. The whole stadium just erupted with a great noise, with a great uh, welcome to that flame. You still find it when the Olympic Games are on every four years. As soon as the, the flame comes into the stadium, there's a great roar of welcome to it. Well, that's the kind of thing that he's saying here happened in regard to the gospel in Thessalonica. They gave it such a welcome. You know, that's really the great privilege we have, isn't it? Of having a position in God's providence of being able to welcome the gospel. Don't take it for granted. Don't just treat it as a matter of Sunday ritual it is a ritual it's good and it's good to see everybody under the gospel and coming to worship God but don't neglect the welcome give a welcome to the Christ of the gospel to the gospel of Christ where he is situated in the heralding and the preaching of the gospel and then he says in which you stand I preach to you that which uh, which you received in which you stand it reminds the Corinthians that the gospel itself is a foundational thing in human life. You see, that's why it's such a serious thing for us uh, to face the call in our day to put the gospel aside, to put the Bible aside, to, to treat the Bible with um, much less respect than has been the case with us up to now. And there are other teachings that you can equally put alongside it or even overtake it. Uh, the Bible shouldn't really be seen as just uh, the great truth or the great book. Well, it is. And the great institutions of this country itself, whether you look at health or education, other institutions, other um, uh, matters of that, are actually based on gospel principles. It's through the gospel and through the truth of the gospel that they were initiated. It wasn't atheism who set them up. It wasn't humanism who set them up. It was the gospel. It was the church. It was Christians. It was the power of God. It was the truth of God. And he's saying here, in which you stand. Because the gospel gives you a foundation. The gospel gives you somewhere safe. Gives you security. It's all about Christ. It's all about his death and his resurrection. You're standing there, he says to the Corinthians. That's where your feet are. And that's so important for yourself, isn't it, today? That you know this gospel gives you the security your soul craves. Your soul needs security. You know that you need security. I know that we need security. We teach our children the need to have security. A well-based life. This is what gives that well-based life. This foundation in which you stand. And then by which you are being saved. That's the fourth thing. He doesn't say by which you have been saved. Or by which you will be saved. But he's saying, by which you are being saved. There's a wonderful thing about a Christian life. Because it's true that a Christian can say, I have been saved, or I was saved. And that's true at the moment of your conversion. At the moment when you come to know Christ as your Savior, whether you can pinpoint it and say, I know exactly where I was, I know the time, I know the day. Many Christians can't say that. But they know that God has changed them, that Jesus has come into their life, that by his grace, as Paul says here, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
Paul is saying it's quite, it's quite okay to say I am saved I've been saved I was saved but then you are being saved as a Christian you're being sanctified God is working in your life God is preparing you for the eternity for the inheritance that he has for his people so that's part of being saved an ongoing way of God working in your life you can say for sure I have been saved I was saved and for all who were saved and who have come to be converted and to know Christ as Savior they'll never again be unsaved but there's a work going on in their lives that needs to be completed by God in order to make them ready for heaven that's I am being saved. And you can also speak. The Bible also tells us there's a sense in which you can say, I shall be saved. Because the coming of Christ is associated with the final phase, the final aspect of salvation. So all of that comes um, uh, into view, as he, says, as he says there, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. See how important it is to hold to the word preached as foundational to our lives. We can move on from that. It was spend a bit longer on that than I intended. But they're important issues. The gospel of our salvation. The gospel which was preached. The gospel which you received. The gospel in which you stand. The gospel by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to what I preached to you. Secondly, the core of the gospel. Notice he's saying here, is of first importance in verse 3 I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received in other words Paul is saying this is top priority for me this gospel this, this gospel of salvation it's of first importance and it's first importance in regard to these core elements especially that Christ died for our sins that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures in other words, when Paul is saying it's of first importance um, that I, I delivered to you what I also received, he's just reminding the Corinthians, this is not my invention. This is not something the church has actually decided to put together. He says, I received it from God. He gave me the gospel. He gave me this mandate to preach the gospel, but he gave me the gospel. He gave me the truth as it is in Jesus to convey through the preaching of the gospel. I received this from God. And I also then delivered it to you. In other words, Paul is saying the gospel has its origin with God itself. And as God gave it to him and he passed it on to the Corinthians... So he's showing that this gospel is actually not a human invention. And you'll find that today, of course, mentioned. Wow, this, this Bible is just a human product. And the gospel itself, this idea that Jesus came into the world, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, it's the disciples really who made that up. Because when Jesus left them and didn't come back, they had to do something in order to try and keep his memory alive. That's the kind of nonsense that you actually find peddled as theology sometimes today. It's not a new thing, but it's actually there as something that destroys the gospel. Because as Paul is saying, as we've seen, this gospel at its core contains the death of Christ and the actual resurrection of Christ. And he says it's of first importance to me that I passed it, what I passed on to you. Well, what did he pass on? 
He's saying that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. See, again, it's not of human origin. And it's an amazing thing in itself. And it's always helpful to just look at how the likes of what we said to the children this morning, the prophecy of Isaiah, as it speaks about the coming of Jesus, because the New Testament quotes from Isaiah in regard to the birth of Christ and the life, the ministry of Christ, hundreds of years apart, and yet fulfilled, sometimes in a very minute way. Isaiah 53, for example, with regard to the death of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus. I mean, who could have predicted that hundreds of years before in such detail, so minutely, if it were not God himself who was behind it? So it helps you to really just um, be assured of the truth of the Bible and of the God origin of the Bible when you see the likes of that sort of feature, a prophecy that came indeed to be fulfilled in Christ and in his death on the cross. What he's saying here, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, just as it had been prophesied of him. But you see what he's saying? He died for our sins. And this is the only place where Paul uses this word for, because it means literally on behalf of. And one of the things it brings in uh, to, to, to our minds is the, the incredibly close connection between sin and me and you. Because sin has no meaning at all unless it is my sin unless it is an act that I have performed in my mind with my body however I have sinned against thought in thought against God in thought or word or action you cannot detach that from your person and it only becomes sin meaningfully when you've done something when it's something that's true of you and what Paul is doing here is saying Christ died for our sins, on behalf of our sins. He's really saying he died for his people, but they were sinners. He died for them as sinners. He died for them knowing that they were sinners. He died for them knowing what their sin deserved. He died for them knowing that he was taking their place. That the death he died on the cross was the death that they deserved. You see, some people don't really simply simply don't catch the idea that the death of Christ is in fact the death that we deserve for our sins that he took to himself please don't think that the worst of Christ's sufferings were his physical sufferings and not in any way at all uh, minimizing the, the physical sufferings of Jesus they were immense even what you know of them from the Bible's description, you can see how immense and how intense they were. But they weren't the worst of his sufferings. As one of the theologians of past times put it, the sufferings of his soul were the soul of his sufferings. That was Hugh Martin speaking about the cross, the death of Jesus. The sufferings of his soul were the soul of his sufferings. In other words, he died in his soul, the death we deserved, separation from God. Why did he say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that very moment, that's what he was experiencing. 
He was experiencing hell in his very soul. This distance from God, this everlasting distance from God, which he was enduring and bearing and experiencing in that moment, in that terrible moment, when darkness covered the face of the earth, when darkness filled the soul of the Savior, he died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That's why he is who he is. That's why he is to his people what he is. Their Savior. Their Deliverer. The one who rescued them from the dilemma of being sinners. When God has his wrath against them, he delivered us, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, from the wrath that is to come. From the wrath of God. That's such a critical element for ourselves, isn't it, today? To know Jesus and the death of Jesus as the basis of your forgiveness. Your forgiveness by God has to be based on something acceptable to God. And that's the death of Christ. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. We always emphasize the importance of faith, of faith in Christ. But faith has to rest on something. And faith actually rests on Jesus himself on what he has accomplished and who he is. He died for our sins. And that means for the likes of you and I. Can you say today Jesus died for my sins? Yes, you can say he died for the sins of those that know him as their Savior, but is that yourself? Can you see of him that he died for your sins? Well, you can if you've come to him and confessed that sin and sought his forgiveness and know his reception and placed your trust upon his word and the gospel. And all who do so will be saved, will be delivered from their sins. And then he says he died for them according to the scriptures and then that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now we're skipping over it far, far too quickly. But you notice he's saying he was buried. And that too for Paul is important. The body of Jesus was actually laid to rest in a sepulchre, in what you would call a tomb. And when you go to John's version of Christ's burial, it's interesting that Paul, uh, that John says, there, there in that sepulchre, they laid Jesus Therefore, Because the Sabbath day was near at hand. There is where they laid Jesus. He didn't just say, there is where they laid the body of Jesus. Why did John say, this man who knew Jesus so well and so closely, why did he say, there is where they laid Jesus? Why didn't he just say, that's where they laid the body of Jesus? It was a dead body. It was the dead body of Jesus. Why did he say, there is where they laid Jesus? Because the body is attached to the person. And the person of the Son of God, whose body this was, is never other than attached to that body even though that body is now dead, it's his body. And so he went into death, and you could say he, through that dead body, went into the grave. You know, sometimes I find it 
Well, it's always a very solemn thing to stand at a gravesite when you're um, committing remains to return to the earth. You stand there with families and others that are, are uh, sorrowing and find it such a difficult moment to say that last farewell. But as you look down into that grave and imagine yourself, your body in that coffin, what a consolation it is to be able to say in your own soul, my Savior was there before me. My Savior took up that place, that space in a tomb. His body was there. And therefore he prepared that for me. And I could go through faith in him and in his death and in his resurrection towards that grave, believing that he has given me victory over death, that I need not fear death itself because he has gained the victory over it for me and I am victorious in him he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures his resurrection from the dead how important as we said all the way through our study this morning but you see again it's according to the scriptures we sang Psalm 68 which uh, the New Testament quotes as uh, words that actually prophesied of the resurrection of Jesus. When God raised him from the dead, when God the Father raised him from the dead, this is what was fulfilled. Thou hast ascended up on high and led captivity captive, the powers that held us captive, the powers of death, the powers of Satan, the powers of darkness. They were led by Jesus, led captive in his wake, in his train, just like a victorious Roman general returning from war with the spoils of war, the prisoners of war dragged behind him. That is where Satan is. That's where the powers of darkness are. They're behind the triumphant chariot of Jesus as he ascended up on high. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Death does not have the last word. The grave does not have the last word. Sin does not have the last word. The devil does not have the last word. That's with Jesus. That's with his resurrection. That's with his triumph over death. That's the portion of his people. If you trust in him today, that's your destiny. That's your future. That's your glorious triumph that awaits you as the day of the resurrection will dawn, as this chapter itself says, all shall be made alive, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. It doesn't mean that those who are not saved will not be raised. They will be raised, but not to eternal life. They will be raised to damnation. Oh, nice word, is it? Not a nice word. But it's a very important word to understand. Because that's our destiny if we're not in Christ. If this death and this resurrection has not been welcomed by us and is foundational to our lives today, then our resurrection is going to be the worst day we've ever lived. There'll be a resurrection that will lead straight to hell. You see this emphasis, this emphasis actually on the resurrection of God's people. And that's where the Bible has the overwhelming emphasis anyway. 
Yes, it speaks about hell and it's important to know about hell and to know about damnation. But the overwhelming emphasis on the Bible is on life, on resurrection life, on eternal life, on life through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. He's emphasizing for us, yes, of course, there's a hell to be avoided, but in a sense, more importantly, there's a heaven to be gained and there's a heaven to be welcomed and there's a salvation to be received. That's the gospel. That doesn't leave out the emphasis on hell. And so neither must we who preach the gospel. But then God is saying, He has no pleasure in the death of the unsaved, but that they should turn from their way and live. Live, live, live. That's God's emphasis. Why should you die? Why did Jesus come into the world? Was it so that people would hear the gospel and choose not to live? Of course not. Though some sadly will. Hope it's not yourself. And that was in accordance with the scriptures. And then he says, And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than five hundred brothers at once. Well, you see, the day in which the apostle wrote to the Corinthians, and certainly the days before that, it would have been perfectly possible to meet with people who had met Jesus after he was risen from the dead. It's not like people will tell you today, there's no proof of this. You can't prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, would reliable people such as the apostles, would they have written that they had met him, that 500 of them had met him? And then people coming to read that in their own day could go and check with these people. Have you really seen Jesus? Is this not a lot of nonsense? And they would say to them, of course I met him. I spoke with him. Perfectly easy to verify in the days of the apostles. You have to hold on to that when people accuse us of being believers in fairy stories and things which are just too incredible to believe. Well, here's Paul saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then life is futile. Preaching is futile. Our faith is in vain. No point in going on. What's the point of turning up here if there's no such thing as the resurrection? Then he says, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Now, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we have nothing in our lives foundationally to hang on to, to place our lives on to. But now he says, He is risen from the dead. It's not a matter of disciples inventing a resurrection in a way as to keep the memory of Jesus alive. It's the other way about. The Jesus who is alive the resurrection of Jesus transformed these people. Why do you think they had the courage and the boldness then to go out into the world, the pagan world, and preach this message of Christ, Christ's death and Christ's resurrection if they had doubts about its truthfulness? Would that have encouraged them? Would that have made them bold to go out with this message which they knew the pagan world was actually going to ridicule? Of course not. This message would not have changed a single human life if Christ had not actually been raised from the dead. Top priority for the apostle. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection. Top priority for you and for me too, surely. May God bless these thoughts on his word to us. Let's now conclude our service. We'll sing in Psalm 119.
Psalm 119, uh, that's on page 158. And we're saying to a tune, Rockingham. That's uh, verses 17 to 24. Do good to me, and I will live. Your servant will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see great wonders in your law, O Lord. Psalm 119 on page 158 from verses 17 through to verse 24. Do good to me and I will live. Do good to me and I will Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen. <laughs>